Do not rush to judgment. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't be such a judgmental person. You can't judge me. Look at you. Only God can judge me. Friends, based on a sample of well-known phrases about judgment, I think it's safe to judge that the topic of judgment has fallen on hard times. Wouldn't you agree? Today, in today's time, is a time of allergic reactions, not just to nuts and gluten, but to judgment. To judgment. We live in a world that is averse to judgment at every turn. Whether it be our choice of food, our choice of education, our choice of music, our choice of sexuality, our choice of career, and even our choice of religion or non-religion for that matter. Whatever sphere or part of our lives it may be, whenever we feel that we are being examined or critiqued or judged, our emotions turn red and begin to itch and swell to the point of making it hard to breathe. It's no wonder that many of these phrases I mentioned a moment ago can be heard coming forth, not in sweet, gentle voices, but through pursed lips, the pursed lips of someone enraged that their individuality, that their personal choice and preference has been stepped upon. How dare you sit in judgment over me? Only God can judge me. As if standing before an infinite and holy, pure and just God is to be preferred over having a friend who disagrees with your love of Pepsi and 90s country music. But what of God's judgment? It's not something Christians talk very much about either, is it? Most likely because God's judgment is something that we haven't studied very much to begin with. And friends, this is to our harm. Why? Because the judgment of God, that is God's bringing justice. Here's a short definition of what God's judgment is. God bringing justice upon those who are in contradiction or rebellion to Him and His command. It's something our Bible talks a lot about. And I mean a lot. At the same time, the judgment of God is something that began at the fall of creation and will continue, not just until Jesus returns, but God's justice and His judgment will reign for all of eternity. So what is this judgment? What is this justice? And what of us when that day of God's judgment finally comes? These are good questions to consider, especially as we consider what it looks like to have a vibrant relationship with this God, to be devoted to this God, to be in worship of this God, and as we call others to join us in this relationship through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are good questions to consider. And this is important reason to know, understand, and have our lives shaped by these 12 minor prophets that we've taken up. They come at the end of the Old Testament, historically known as the Twelve, 
the group of peculiar men who received the word of the Lord for his people in a very dark and uncertain time in God's history of redemption, a period of around 300 to 400 years, a period when God's judgment and his hand of discipline came upon his people for their ongoing rebellion to his command to live holy as he is holy. Oh, friends, these 12 have a, a message for us today. Now, the last two weeks, we've taken up looking at the prophet Hosea, who was the earliest, one of the earliest of these minor prophets. But that's not why he's first among them. I don't know if I mentioned this in those first two sermons, but it's worth remembering here if I did. Now, many scholars and historical theologians believe that Hosea comes first in the minor prophets because he unveils the very heart of God. The very heart of God as the introductory message of the twelve. And what is the very heart of God that Hosea holds out for us as we begin our journey through these minor prophets? We'll say it simply. Hosea is given to show us that God's heart is toward His people and that He is set on pursuing and redeeming a people for His own name's sake. That He is set on going after them because He loves them. And His love is steadfast. It is immovable. And He, though they are faithless, is faithful to His people, even when they are fickle, even when they are weak, and even, yes, when they are rebellious. Hosea shows us that God will redeem, which brings us to the prophecy that we're going to take up today, the prophecy of Joel. Whereas Hosea was given to the northern kingdom of Israel before they were taken into exile in 722 B.C. And let me just say this here, quick history lesson. When we're talking about B.C., the numbers move backwards, okay? So, so, so bigger numbers are earlier, smaller numbers are closer or, or sooner. Sooner? Is that a word? It is now. All right. So whereas Hosea is one of the earliest prophets who prophesied before the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile into Assyria in 722 B.C. Joel, many believe, is one of the last. He's one of the final prophets. Little is known about him, as we'll see here in just a moment, other than that he's delivering God's word to the southern kingdom of Judah. But when? Well, there's no mention of kings at the beginning. There's no mention of Assyria or Babylon who took God's people into exile. There's no mention of the temple throughout. And so by all accounts, it seems that Joel is one of the final prophets to prophesy, preaching to God's people after 516 B.C., after they are captured, after Solomon's temple is destroyed, after they are taken away into Babylon. Remember, Judah is taken away by Babylon. And even after they return back to Jerusalem and a second temple and the city walls are rebuilt under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So why, here's the question for us as we're studying our Bibles, would this composition of the twelve put together in the, the end of our Old Testament begin with one of the earliest and be followed by one of the last prophets. Why are they not in chronological order? Why jumping around? Well, there's a purpose. It's not because people long ago were really bad at calendars, but because of the message of Joel. The message of Joel. His name means Yahweh is God. And the central message of Joel is, is central to understanding the message of these 12 prophets throughout. 
It's a message that I hinted at in last week's sermon, but we now find fully laid out and ferociously laid out, and it is this, that salvation comes through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Yes, judgment. That word that causes so many of us to squirm in our seats and reconsider if we should invite our friends to church. Perhaps Joel left out the mention of kings or the temple and speaks generally about foreign armies because his message of salvation through judgment transcends his own time and place and people. Perhaps it's a message that we need to hear today. See, friends, it's books like Joel that help us understand not only the goodness of God's judgment, but the deep and abiding grace of His salvation. Judgment and salvation, discipline and grace seen together to spur us on to live lives that are devoted to Him more and more and more. And friends, that's my prayer for us today as we look at this book. Is that by the end of our study of the book of Joel, you'll come to see the glory of God's judgment. And let me just say that again, by the, because this is, this is where we're aiming today. That by the end of our study of the book of Joel this morning, that you will come to see and to worship God the more you see the glory of His judgment, the goodness of His judgment, and yes, even the grace of God's judgment. So in light of that, we turn with me to the book of Joel in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot yours at home, I'd encourage you to grab the one there in front of you, that black Bible there in the pew. And Joel can be found on page 712 in that Bible, 712. If you're new to the Bible, once you get 712, just look for the big name Joel. That's where I'll be throughout the book or throughout the sermon. I'll be looking at this entire book. And, and friends, let me encourage you here to keep your Bibles open, especially in this series, because we're going to be jumping around. We're looking at entire books at one time, looking at a bunch of different verses. If you have your Bible closed, you're going to get bored. So keep them open. Well, friends, instead of opening with the reading of God's Word as we normally do, let me go ahead and give you the points. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it uh, and begin reading different sections of this book throughout. So here are the three points. They're there in your bulletin as well to keep you guided if you need it. But first, we're going to see the looming judgment. Second, we're going to consider the sure salvation. And finally, we're going to consider this merciful God that the book holds out. And as we do, as I said, my prayer is that by the end, you'll come to not just appreciate, but worship God because of His judgment and the salvation that it does indeed extend. So let's begin by thinking about this looming judgment. It's really held out for us in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2. So let's look back there. After learning the name of our prophet, which I said as a moment ago, I said means Yahweh is God. The only other detail we have is that his father's name is Pethuel. And after this... We are immediately launched into the call of God towards His people. You see it there in verses 2 and 3. Let me read it. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That is, great-grandchildren at that point. It's this intense call begins this book. This intense call begins this prophecy 
It is intense because of the, the, the event that it records, an event that is given in the past tense, showing that whatever he is about to describe to us has already taken place, and he's going to interpret it for them because he wants them to tell subsequent generations what has just taken place. So what is the event? Well, let's keep reading in verse 4. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now what's going on here? What is this disaster that he's speaking of? What does he want them to do about it? We find that God's people have been attacked by a series of locusts. A plague that has come upon them. Yes, locusts, those giant crop-eating grasshoppers. They've come upon them, and there's different kinds of locusts. We see four of them mentioned here. One after another have come upon them. Now, children, if you don't know what these look like this afternoon, you can ask your parents to find some pictures of locusts. They're ugly boogers, let me tell you. And they're vicious. Now, let's be clear about this, though, that locusts were common in these days. You can go and read history of different locust attacks that happened throughout the, the past, that, that they're very common in, in Africa and the Middle East and in Asia and during these times. But this is no common locust attack. No, often it would just be one type of locust that would show up and they would decimate a few crops and, oh shucks, that stinks, but it'll be okay, we'll get past this. But that's not the kind of plague he describes, is it? That's not the kind of a attack he describes, is it? This is not just a locust attack on farm to farm. This is total devastation. This is a complete undoing of agricultural and economic life. Not to mention the blessings and fruitfulness of the land in general. Joel mentions, as I mentioned a moment ago, four types of locusts. Each one taking the baton from the one before it and eating and gnawing and obliterating the crops. From the vineyards to the orchards to the fields. This is a monumental and catastrophic event upon the people of Israel. And yet, if we have been readers of our Bibles, even reading through Exodus at the end of last year in our church-wide Bible reading plan, we know that locust plagues have a place in the Bible, don't they? There's something that happens. You might remember there in Exodus 10, as God Himself is performing signs and wonders through Moses in order to bring the people out of the enslavement of Egypt and to bring Egypt to their knees, one of the ten wonders God performs was to bring a locust plague upon the people of Egypt. It says there in Exodus 10, Moses speaking to Pharaoh, For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have ever seen from the, the day they came from on the earth to this day. It's a lot of bugs. But now, here in Joel, we have the almost exact same thing happening. Notice there in Exodus 10, the mention of the generations, your fathers, your grandfathers. We have the same thing here, don't we? Except one notable difference, one unsettling difference if we're good readers of our Bible. And that is that these locusts have not come upon a nation that is enslaving God's people, but they've come upon God's people themselves. 
God's chosen people. God's people who were rescued from bondage. God's people who were given this precious and bountiful land. God's people who were promised by God that they would be cared for if they walked in covenant obedience to Him. And so it, it, it might not be a surprise that Joel tells them to respond the way that he does. As this opening section calls for this covenant community to gather at the temple and to lament and pray for the Lord to show mercy in the midst of this wreckage and devastation. And so if you go on and read in verses 5 through 14 of Joel chapter 1, you will find Joel calls God's people to respond in 18 different ways. We see commands like weep and wail and grieve and mourn and even be ashamed. And these calls, they're not just far-reaching in nature, but they're far-reaching in scope, meaning it includes everyone who is to respond in great sorrow. Everyone from the drunkards who no longer have their intoxicating wine to the farmers who live by the crops they grow, all the way to the priest who can no longer make sacrifice and food offerings to God and maintain covenant holiness. And to say it simply, this attack of bugs has totally undone the very people of God. We may step back and wonder how could God allow such a thing to happen to His special people. I mean, for sure we... We think the same thing ourselves, don't we? we think, as a Christian, we may think, I love the Lord. I've made a profession of, of faith in, in Jesus. I, I show up. Yeah, there's some things where, where I, I know that I'm disobeying God and, and I'm not walking as He's told me to and I'm not upholding the, the call of His Word in my life. I'm not devoted to Him, but, but why are these bad things happening to me? Sure, I've neglected my relationship with God. Sure, I've knowingly given myself to, to disobedience. But how could God allow such hardship upon a people that He says He loves? It brings us to this astounding statement in verse 15 of Joel 1. Look back there. Alas for the day. What day? For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God, meaning the temple? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts themselves, they groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even though flocks of sheep suffer, to you, O Lord, I call. Joel begins to pray here. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. We see as these locusts have destroyed and caused ongoing natural disaster among the people, that the people are to cry out to God. And as they do, we find something new introduced here. New not just to Joel's prophecy, but new to the twelve. 
And I'm going to point it out here because it's going to be a theme now that's going to run throughout the rest of these prophets. You're going to see this come up again and again and again. And what is it? Alas for the day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. We come to realize in this that the chaos of the locust is not some random event that God just allowed to happen. But in fact, it is the act of the living and moving God Himself. It is the response of a holy and caring God who disciplines the one He loves. And friends, this is a difficult discipline that they should have seen coming. Do you realize this? This is the glory of God's Word held out to us. This locust plague should have been no surprise to them. Because God Himself had told them, He had warned them that this curse would come upon them if they did not walk in obedience to Him. Don't believe me? Well, if you got time, flip back there. If not, I'll just read it for you. Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, 38 through 42, listen to what God says. Through Moses to the people as they are about to enter into the promised land, that land that just got eaten by locusts. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The crickets shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. And this is a thing worth noting about the day of the Lord. Because as we come to see, God has foretold it would happen, and here it is. But as we begin to look at this theme of the day of the Lord and this looming judgment, we see that the day of the Lord is not a singular day. It's not just something that happened a long time ago. No, the day of the Lord, the idea, the concept, is something we see running throughout the Scriptures, this day when God brings justice through judgment and brings salvation through judgment is something that happens over and over again. Like the various ridges of the Blue Ridge Mountains, there is one after another, after another, and another. And so this phrase, the day of the Lord, shows ridge after ridge of God's judgment, His destruction, and His bringing low of those who are walking contrary to His ways. And that's what's exactly what's happened here, even to God's chosen people. God has executed a small and temporary judgment upon them, a day of the Lord, an act of discipline for their unfaithfulness. But friends, it's only a taste. As we look back at chapter 2, we find that there's now another threat that faces Judah. While Joel recounts the locust plague they had already experienced, it seems now that he foretells of another possible attack that is yet to come upon them. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. You're going to see that phrase happen twice in this book. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Another one. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There like has never been before, nor will again after them through the years of all generations." 
So what do we have here? Now there's various interpretations of chapter 2 as it relates to chapter 1. And is he still just talking about the locusts? Is he referring to them in a different way? Is he just retelling what he's already said over again? Some can make that argument and defend it. Good for them. I don't think that's what's happening though. I think what he's talking about here is something that is yet to come. It's something that's held out in the future. Whereas chapter 1 held out these bugs and they were, they were cast as almost like an army overtaking Judah. Now we see an army that is described and they're going to flow into God's land like bugs. It's holding out this future military attack that is going to come upon God's people. Another attack is on the horizon. Only this time it won't be bugs but people. So we read in Joel 2.6, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. And now look who's mentioned. The Lord, Yahweh himself, utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord, there it is again, is great and awesome. Who can endure it? We hear now of another day of the Lord, only this time the results of God's judgment will be much more devastating. The results will leave the entire city in ruins. It won't matter if the crops survive or not. There won't be anyone to eat them. And who is it that will lead this army? It says there in verse 11, I pointed it out, the Lord utters His voice before His army. Friends, we see it is God Himself who will judge. It is God Himself who will bring His swift hand. And so what are you to make of the day of the Lord? What are we to make of a God who, who moves in this way? Friend, I, I wonder, what do you think of God as judge? Now, whether it be in matters of our own day or in that final day of the Lord, when He will execute full and complete judgment, how do you feel about this? I'm assuming when you hear that God is Father that He is friend, that He is a strong tower. No doubt your heart, like mine does, is warmed and finds great comfort and relief. But what of God as judge? What does your heart do then? How do you respond to the severity of God? And can you cry out along with Abraham who, while looking at the wretched and wicked city of Sodom, cried out, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Is that the cry of your heart? Do you trust in the judgment of God? Do you trust Him to do what is right? Can you cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 82, 8, Rise up, O God, judge the earth. See, this is where Joel's message is so helpful to us, even as we live as followers of God now. Why? Because it helps us to have a right view of who God is, 
and a right view of who we ought to be. We come to face to face with a God who is not only free to execute judgment, but does it always in wisdom and is always right when He executes judgment. We move from having a God made in our own image to God as He really is. There's no doubt that many of us fall on one side of the ditch or another in this respect. Some of us tend to concoct a God in our minds who is always affirming. He's always on our side. No matter our sin, no matter our ignoring or neglecting Him, in the end, some of us imagine that God could never judge us as being in the wrong and never bring the pain of discipline into our lives. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a follower of this God and and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you think, well, God could never judge me this strictly. He could never bring ruin upon my life. There's never a day of the Lord for me because God would never do that. Oh, I've heard from you Christians. You always talk about how God is love and, and He's forgiving and He's gracious. Will He not be gracious with me? But on the other hand, there are some of us who only see discipline. Or would be better to say we only see condemnation. For us, every day is the day of the Lord. And every sorrow and every heartache and every trial is because we have failed and we have messed up and we didn't measure up in some way or another. We walk away, half, walk around half expecting to be struck by lightning because we gave one of our kids the stink eye for leaving the back door open. But is this who God the judge actually is. When we bring these views to the book of Joel and take note of how God dealt with His people then, we see that God is not arbitrary in His judgment. What does that mean? Arbitrary is too big of a word for Sunday morning. It means that God's not willy-nilly in His judgment. God isn't in heaven throwing judgment darts and they land wherever they might. No, God's judgment here is brought specifically upon those, His covenant people who had received His glorious promises and experienced an intimate relationship in His presence. And yet, though they have experienced all of this goodness, they have gone their own way. They have chose their own path. They have chose to worship and indulge themselves in the world and the things of it. Their worship and devotion to Him had grown cold. And like all good discipline, He brings this pain into their life with the threat of growing sorrow so that they might be drawn back into right fellowship with Him. Which means, if you find yourself in hardship, in heartache, and great sorrow, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is bringing His disciplinary judgment upon you, but it might. And so one of the first questions we should always ask when trial comes upon our lives is, is there some unrepentant sin in my life that I need to turn from? Is God bringing this great sorrow into my life to help, me turn, to help turn me back to Him? Is the repentance that needs to take place. Does this mean every locust plague that comes upon our lives is because we are in sin? No. 
but we should consider it. Because this is where hope lives. This is where we can find a sure salvation. Which is exactly what we find at the end of Joel's prophecy. So hang tight with me here. We just looked at the first half of Joel, well, the first third of Joel. We're now going to jump to the last third of Joel. So let's jump to the very end of Joel's prophecy and see the sure salvation that's held out. Flip over to chapter 3 of Joel as we see the sure salvation. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So as we begin chapter 3 and we consider the sure salvation, we find that judgment has not necessarily gone away. Notice that. God's judgment has not gone away. No, it's just turned. Do you see that? In fact, we find the judgment of God that was disciplinary for the people of God before is now much more severe for those who have opposed God and His people. What are called the nations here. You see this even more if you look down at the poetic prophecy of chapter 3, picking up there in verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. We find another day of the Lord here, don't we? We find a future day of the Lord where God is executing judgment once more. As it were, this is God's great calling out. Did you notice that in the beginning? God says, come on with it. Bring what you got. O nations, come at me. It's reminiscent of Psalm 2, which Pastor Sean preached back in June. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We see it here that they have come up against Yahweh, and this is the day of the Lord. While all of those other days pointed ahead to a lasting judgment upon the horizon, here we have that day. The day when God will fully and finally execute His judgment, not upon His own people, but upon the nations. You hear how God calls them out. Do you hear how God tells those who are opposed to Him to give it their best shot? He says that the battle will go down in the valley of Jehoshaphat. I don't know if that's any of your uh, name, baby name list, but, but literally Jehoshaphat means Jehovah is judge. And so he says, come on down, we're going to meet in the valley of Yahweh is judge. 
This does not bode well for those who come up against him. It's his valley, and he is the one who reigns. Literally, this war against God will be determined in the valley of Yahweh's judgment, meaning he will win. He will bring them to an end. And friends, this is a judgment on a different scale. This is a lasting and damning judgment. This is the judgment for all those who stand opposed to God. But what of His people now? Where are they? What will become of them? Will they be wrapped up into this judgment as well? We'll look back at verse 16. But the Lord... What glorious words from His Word. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Friends, what's held out in the end? Well, these final verses of the book show the glorious results of God's gracious provision for His people. And it shows it in terms that would be paradise for an ancient people, including a dwelling place with Him, as we saw in verse 17. A never-ending supply of wine and milk and flowing water in verse 18. And there in verse 20, an eternal security. Now, some may read this passage literally, which is valid. I'll grant you that. That's one way to read this passage. But I believe it's more likely that there's something far greater at play here. And that this is that this salvation is beyond what even those of the Old Covenant believers could have imagined. Joel in his prophecy delivers it to them in a way that they can understand, but there's something more glorious than mere place that is mentioned. Do you notice that? There are various places in this passage that are drawn out. But it seems that there is a deeper truth here, something more Existential, something more eternal, something more glorious than simple places. You see, Joel, like, like all the biblical prophets, use these vivid biblical images to capture a greater truth than our minds can even comprehend. And we find this in this back and forth between the places God brings low and the places He lifts up. On the one hand, you have Egypt and Edom here. Now, we're going to see Edom dealt with in a few weeks. We have Egypt and Edom here representing the very enemies of God. And for them, also called earlier the nations, they are desolate. They are nothing. They are utterly ruined. And then, on the other hand, you have Judah, the tribe of the king, and Jerusalem, a city of peace representing the people of God, surrounding the King of God. And for them, what is held out? 
salvation. We have not just a reimagining of the promised land. If you, if you heard some promised land language there, that was good. Pick that up. But it's not just the promised land that's reimagined here. No, it's, it's paradise itself. This is a new Eden that is held out where God reigns and He is among His people roaring as a lion. He is in Zion, the city, the city of God where He is the center. It's no wonder then that John himself takes up these images in his vision in Revelation 18 and 19. We see the dichotomy then held out as a sure salvation that for those who are opposed to Yahweh, there is judgment. And that goes for individuals all the way to nations, to the peoples of the world who stand opposed to Him, who shake their fist at Him, who hate Him and who do great injustices against Him and against His people and against all that He has made and all that He has commanded for them is held out judgment. And so friends, as you look around at the world and you're, you are heartbroken by the actions and the attitudes of those who hate God, rest, have peace, have confidence that you have a God that you can stand upon who will, in the end, judge them. And at the same time, for those who find refuge in God, who come to Him, who lay before Him, contrite and humble, offering them Him their lives and humble submission, for them is held out salvation. Which brings us to a pressing question, a question you need to ask today. It's the main question of Joel. It's the tension that I'm sure many of us feel right now. On the one hand, we find this loving, disciplinary judgment meant to bring correction, ultimately restoration between God and His people. And on the other hand, we find this damning judgment that's meant to bring sorrow and condemnation down upon the heads of those who refuse to walk with God and refuse to walk in God's ways and worship Him. And so if we believe, as we confess this morning, that each of us is born with a nature that is marred and twisted by sin and rebellion, if we believe that we are enemies of God through our words and our deeds, how is it that we, deserving the full wrath of God and judgment, how is it that we can move from experiencing everlasting judgment of God the judge to experiencing the everlasting salvation of God the Redeemer? Or to put it simply, what hope is there for us in going from being God's enemies to God's friends? Well, this is what the middle portion of Joel's prophecy is all about. The reason I saved it for the end is because it, it, it is the climax it, it is the pinnacle. It, it is the highest point of Joel's prophecy held out for us. So let's consider this God who is merciful. In his Christian classic, Knowing God, J.I. Packer began a chapter entitled Goodness and Severity of God this way. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, writes Paul in Romans eleven twenty-two. The crucial word here is and. The apostle is explaining the relation between Jew and Gentile in their plan of God. 
He has just reminded his Gentile readers that God rejected the great mass of their Jewish contemporaries for unbelief, while at the same time bringing many pagans like themselves to saving faith. Now he invites them to take note of the two sides of God's character which appeared in this transaction. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. The Christians at Rome are not to dwell on God's goodness alone, nor on his severity alone, but to contemplate both together. Both are attributes of God. That is of his revealed character. Both appear alongside each other in the economy of grace. Both must be acknowledged together if God is to be truly known. Here we have it. God's severity and His goodness. His judgment, His salvation, His damnation, and His redemption. Held hand in hand within the tension of who He is. But do you know that? How does it sit with you? Do you see these two things held in tension within the economy of grace, as Packer says? This is the message of Joel's book. In that first part, we found the great severity toward his own people for their lack of worship, holding out the great and terrifying day of the Lord, where his judgment would be brought with swift severity that only God himself could achieve. But as we saw, within that judgment, salvation was held out for God's people, those who were set apart. But how are they set apart? How do they become his friends? While the day of Yahweh would bring judgment, it would also bring global salvation, a restoration that is at once astonishing and feels almost too good to be true. But how is it so? How is it that God could do such a thing? And how do we respond to such a truth? That's what the pinnacle of this book holds out. This is actually, it's, it's, it's the high point of judgment and salvation. It's what these two themes circle around. It begins there in the middle of chapter 2, picking up in verse 12. Look back there. God himself, Joel draws out, now speaks. Yet even now declares the Lord. If we just stop for a moment and pick this up. God doesn't mutter it. He doesn't mumble this truth. He doesn't even just say it in a nice tone. He declares it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. We bring ourselves to ask how it could be that a God of all judgment and justice could ever be met with mercy and salvation. We find ourselves here in the very person of God himself. Did you notice that in, in Joel's call to repentance, how he described God himself, how he wants us to know the Lord. He used these attributes, these naming of God, this, this characteristic of who God is that goes all the way back to Exodus 34. And it's found throughout the entire Old Testament. 
that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The drum beats over and over and over and over in our Bibles. Now, How is it that we can move from the everlasting judgment of God to the everlasting salvation of God? It is through who He is. It is how God is known to His people that He is a gracious and merciful God, that He is slow to anger, that He is patient, that He is long-suffering, and that His love abides. He relents from disaster because of it. Why is this the way that God has described to His people over and over and over again throughout the ages? Because it is the very heart of God toward His repentant people. It's the very nature of God who saves and blesses. It's the very character of God for those who come to Him. And this is exactly what Joel wants the people to see. So often we read these minor prophets and we think they're all doom and gloom. And there is a lot of doom and gloom. Don't miss that. But at the top, at the crest of the hill, at the very climax of the entire thing is a God who is gracious and merciful. It's a God who relents for those who are repentant. This is why Joel then goes on from verses 15 to 27 to call the people to come to God and to lay out all the many blessings He is going to bestow on them. But why? Why would God do such a thing for these people? And why would God do such a thing for us? Well, friends, what is at stake is not merely the well-being of God's people. Yes, He cares about that. But it is also the glory of His own name. So we find the foundation of God's grace shines through in His promises, overwhelming the very sins of His people. We are again confronted with the faithful God against the faithless people. This all culminates there in verse 28 of chapter 2. should be familiar to you if you were here earlier today. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your men shall see visions. Young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit... And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls Friends, what a glorious word to God's people. But again, we are met here with a vision that had not yet been unveiled in their time. It was a vision that came to pass in our time, in the age of salvation to all who call on the name of the Lord. And so we know throughout the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit did not reside and rest on the people of God in a permanent way. They were not indwelt by Him. Instead, their fellowship with God was mediated through the priests, and they found comfort through the law and through the sacrificial system. But here we find a new thing. Something new is going to come, a new comfort, a new comforter, a new mediation, a new mediator, a new life. 
It's handed to them through the promise of the coming Spirit. So it's no wonder that Peter himself takes up these words from Joel in Acts chapter 2 when the promise that Jesus himself gives of the Holy Spirit's coming, he falls down and he gives utterance to the apostles and they speak in languages so that the people can understand. And what does the Spirit give them? He gives them witness. Witness to who? Jesus Christ. As the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, he empowers them to boldly give witness to the gospel itself. And that's where Joel's prophecy is finally fulfilled. Showing that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What then? What does this leave us with? Well, friends, it leaves us with the pinnacle of all salvation. That our God is a merciful God, and we see that most clearly and most fully in the cross of Christ. What does this mean for you, Christian? It means that your day of the Lord has already come. It means that your day of judgment, of condemnation, has already come. That on the day when Christ was crucified, the great and awesome day of the Lord, that you deserved, the judgment that you deserved was taken in Jesus Christ. It's why right after quoting Joel, Peter goes on to say that the one that you crucified, he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Or to say it another way, the great tension of judgment and salvation, or salvation through judgment, can only be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is where we find our sweet relief. Because it is here that judgment goes from damnation to just discipline. It is in the cross of Christ that we find judgment, the judgment of God poured out on all those who call on His name. It is in the cross of Christ that we find the fullest and darkest day of the Lord for all God's people. For it is there that our judgment was handled. It was there that our sins were atoned for. It was there that payment was made for us. It wasn't in a locust plague. It wasn't even in the attack of an army. No, our judgment was dealt out by the Father Himself as He promised through the brutal murder of His Son. And Jesus Christ, in His death, stood judged, not for crimes He had committed, not for wrongs He had done, but for us and for our salvation. And so as Jesus hung upon the cross, he bore the awful weight and wages of judgment that His people had built up. Not just for Jews, but also for us Gentiles. He was crucified for us in our place, bearing the very great and awesome day of the Lord. Who could bear it and yet live? Only He could. Do you see that? Who can bear it? Only Christ can bear it and yet live. He took the judgment of God to the very last blow, yielding up His Spirit. And while He laid in the ground for three days, He soon rose from the dead, showing that the full judgment had been paid for. Showing that when God's hand of judgment now comes upon His children, it is not for condemnation, but it is for sanctification. This is why the message of Joel is truly the message of the cross. Salvation 
through judgment. It's through judgment that God extends salvation to us. And so, the same crossroads extend before us that extended before Joel's hearers. One road has a beautiful canopy of grace found coming under the blood of Jesus Christ. And the other road is barren with the very wrath of God. And so, as we prepare to come to the table today, I must put it before you once more. The reality that you must settle in your heart and in your soul today. As you see again and again the great and awesome day of the Lord in Joel, through the locust plague, through the threat of military conquest. As you see the great and awesome day of the Lord and the cross of Jesus Christ, and as you look ahead to that great and awesome day of the Lord when God's judgment will finally be dealt in its fullness, when the nations will be condemned and His people will be saved, will you see the judgment of God? And instead of scoffing at it, instead of denying it, instead of shaking your fist or ignoring it, will you rejoice in it? Looking to the one who will bring justice to the nations and vindicate his people through the risen and reigning Jesus. This is our God, and this is his salvation. Let us pray. Oh God, that we might look at you as judge and rejoice. Rejoice that you are a God who executes perfect judgment, and yet you're merciful and kind to those who call upon you. Oh, judge, we do come and we ask for your mercy and your grace. We ask that you would redeem us, even afresh in this moment. God, as we prepare to take and eat and drink, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ. It is by Him and Him alone that we can come before you that your throne would turn from a throne of judgment into a throne of grace. That you would move from being a God who would condemn to a God who redeems us. And God, I do pray over those who stand condemned even this morning that you would open their eyes and move in their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them as it came upon the apostles that you would enliven them, that they may see that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Would you come upon them now that they may see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation first for the Jew and also for the Greek. May you save and redeem the little ones to the old ones today, that we may be repentant and believing, trusting, full of faith in you, our God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.